by the President of the United States of America. A proclamation. Whereas on the 22nd day of September in the year of our Lord 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following to wit. That on the first day of January in the year of our Lord 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no acts or will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts that they make for their actual freedom. People don't talk like that anymore. I even stumbled some words there. But if you didn't get the clue within the, what I quoted, this is the Emancipation Proclamation given by President Abraham Lincoln at the beginning of 1863. Now, that word emancipation is sort of a fancy word. We seldom use it anymore. But you can get the synonym of that word even within the proclamation itself. Freedom. Freedom synonymous with emancipation. And rightly, we celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation. We're still talking about it here in 2018, still learn about it in school. But looking back in history and looking at this actual document, we can ask ourselves, did the Emancipation Proclamation work? Did it work to free slaves completely? It's an interesting question. Well, even on the face of it, even on the face of this proclamation, there are limitations to it. You see, overall, this proclamation gave free status to three and a half million slaves. But it left over a half a million slaves in slavery. What's more is that this proclamation couldn't come into place until the Civil War was over. The southern states didn't have to follow this until the Union had won. It didn't free them right away. What's more is the Emancipation Proclamation did not make illegal the entire institution of slavery. That wouldn't happen until the 13th Amendment in 1865. So we asked, did the Emancipation Proclamation work to completely set slaves free? Well, even on the face of it, the answer is no. We're looking at not just that, but also the 13th Amendment giving free status. Did it completely work to give freedom. Well, underneath it all is perhaps the biggest issue. Yes, the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment gave free status, but those things didn't really deal with how the free status could be lived out. It didn't deal with life after freedom. Historians Michael Emerson and Christian Smith say this in their book, Divided by Faith. The four million former slaves were now four million people without land, with few economic resources, 
without much formal education, without even cooking utensils, and surrounded by hostile people who wanted to prove the new era a mistake. So here we have African Americans now freed to unfold more deeply into the social and economic life of America. But not only did most lack the resources for this, but they were prevented from doing this with actual structures like sharecropping and Jim Crow laws. So here's the point, friends. Yes, we should celebrate things like the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment. But life after institutional slavery was over, it didn't look like a life of complete freedom. Freed people were prevented from living like they were free. So a similar thing was happening back in the first century in a portion of what's now called Turkey, called Galatia where new Christians there had been set free by Christ. But now teachers came along and prevented them from living like they were actually free. So if you haven't turned there by now, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. You'll find it on page 974 if you're looking at the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. We will get to 975 today. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, the Bible is divided into 66 books, and each one of those books is divided into chapters and verses. Uh, and so here, like if you're looking at page 974, the book Galatians in the top left corner, and then we see chapters are the big bold numbers and verses are the small little numbers. I, just, I say those things because, you know, people who've been around the Bible a long time uh, take for granted that just information like that that others may not know, and it's okay if you don't know it. So uh, Galatians 5.1, that means Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And what I want you to notice as we're reading verses 1 to 12 is the main point that free people are meant to be free. Free people are meant to be free. Christ has set us free, and we're meant to live like it. Galatians 5, 1-12. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? 
In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Galatians 5, 1 to 12. It's another passage with a lot of content. But it follows a similar pattern that uh, the Apostle Paul has already set in this book of Galatians. We see looking at the two paragraphs here, he begins with more of a theological argument. He's arguing based on the truth of who God is and what he's done and how he has revealed himself that he brings people back to himself. That's verses 1 to 6, but verses 7 to 12 follow up in that same pattern after a theological argument to move into more of a personal plea. But this is Paul talking, and Paul cares about these people in Galatia. So we can summarize each of those paragraphs, that theological argument and the personal plea, with two different imperatives or commands. The first being, keep Jesus as your Savior. The second being, stay the course of God's gospel. We're going to focus uh, most of our time on the former uh, command. We're going to tackle both of these in turn so that we see free people are meant to be free. That Christ has set us free and we're meant to live like it. So first we see keep Jesus as your Savior. So the first verse of chapter 5, many have noticed, acts as a bit of a transition verse. It's a transition because it both looks backward to what came before and it looks forward to what's coming ahead. It looks backward to chapter 4 by mentioning that word freedom. Freedom has been a large theme, a central theme in chapter 4 of Galatians. So really what the Apostle Paul is at pains to show in chapter 4 is how we are set free in the first place. But we need to be set free because each one of us on our own are enslaved. And we describe this as each one of us gives ourselves to something. Each one of us lives for something. Everyone worships. And on our own, we exchange the place that God should have in our worship for things lesser than him. Whether it be Money, whether it be power, whether it be intellect, whether it be beauty, whether it be sex, whether it be fame. When we give ourselves to those things, we have to work to achieve status from those things. And when those things disappoint us, it's devastating. That's bondage. That way of living is bondage. And what's more, that way of living, giving yourself to Something else besides God. It's not just bondage. It's not just futile. Friends, it's sinful. The only one who deserves the central place in our hearts and lives is the God of the universe. That's his throne. He made you and me. So getting ourselves out of that bondage, Paul argues, is not our work. It's God's work. He says, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born under the law, fulfilled the demands of the law that we didn't keep, 
and took the curse of the law that we earned ourselves and took that on himself by dying on the cross in our place. And now, united to Christ by faith, we are set free. That's God's work. And Paul has been at pains to show that our freedom from sin and our freedom from earning status, that's always been by God's grace. It's always been because of God's provision, not by relying on ourselves. Freedom. So what happens now? How should free people live? Well, friends, that's really much of the New Testament. Dealing with how Christians should live out now that they are saved? Well, what does it say here? How should those who have been freed now live? They should live in freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. This acts as sort of a topic sentence for all of chapter 5 and especially these two paragraphs today. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, if we were writing that, we'd probably say that backwards. Christ has set us free for freedom. Let's take that for the first part of it, or actually the second part. Christ has set us free. You notice what that doesn't say? It doesn't say, well, Christ might set us free, or Christ is going to set us free. It says Christ has set us free. This is completed. It's a completed act. And so the means of Christ setting us free should bring about what end? Christ has set us free for freedom. That's a novel concept, isn't it? That free people are free. It's not Christ has set us free so that we would be put in bondage again. It's not Christ has set us free for bondage. It's not for anxiety, Christ has set us free. For guilt, Christ has set us free. For anger, Christ has set us free. For misery, Christ has set us free. It's none of those things. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, free to do what? Christ has set us free to do what? It's often said that freedom is defined as being willing to do the thing you most want to do. So what are we set free now to do? Well, it's freedom to live for the Lord. Not because we have to live for the Lord to, to get things from Him. No, it's freedom to live for the Lord because we want to live for the Lord. Boy, that's such a change in motivation, isn't it? That's so resting. That's so assuring. That's freedom. It's no longer a motivation of selfishness and a motivation out of fear. It's a motivation out of assured, grateful love. Free to live for the Lord because we want to. We'll talk about that more next week. So Christ has set us free for freedom. He has done it. It's completed. Well, Paul goes on in verse 1 and says, 
Therefore, do what? Stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Therefore, commands. Stand firm. Don't submit again. If Christ has done it, if it is completed, why do we need commands like that? If it's done, the work's done. Why, why need commands? Well, it's because Christ may have set us free. But friends, so often we don't live like Christ has set us free. Yes, the work is finished. But we don't live like the work is finished. We live as if we have to complete the work that Christ has finished. It reminds me of an exchange that supposedly Martin Luther had with one of uh, the people who went to his church back in 16th century Germany. So someone from his church came up to Pastor Luther, uh, probably after service, said, uh, hey, Pastor Martin, um, every week, you know, really good sermons. You're a great reformer. I know that. Uh, but every week, you just you preach the gospel. We should, we should do something else. Every, every week, why do you keep preaching the gospel? Uh, to which Pastor Martin replies, uh, well, thank you for that observation. It's good that you notice that. Um, but I pre- week after week, I preach the gospel because week after week, you forget it. When we forget freedom, We live in constant fear. Constant fear that we're not living up. When we forget that Christ has done it, that it is finished, we're guilt-ridden. We're anxiety-driven. And this is what was happening in Galatia. So these, these Galatians were told that they had to maintain their freedom status. They had to fully earn their freedom status by obeying God's commands in the Old Testament law. That they had to finish what Christ started. And here, Paul says, and even elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus says that doing this, that having to do this, fulfill the demands of the law to earn your freedom, that is a yoke that we cannot bear. A yoke is a harness for oxen so that they would plow the field in straight lines and they wouldn't run away. Naturally, a a yoke for oxen would be heavy. And the law for us, having to fulfill the law to earn our freedom, is a heavy yoke that will crush us. We can't carry it. But you know who can carry it? Jesus Christ. And he has carried it. And he says, Take that yoke and put it on me. And if that has happened and he has done it, he has carried it, and you can't carry it, why would you take it back from him and try to carry it yourself? For freedom Christ has set us free, not for bondage. So, this is just the topic sentence. Verse 1. This is the glories of God's word that we can focus in on, on a phrase and a verse and just see the beauty of God there. 
where Paul teases out these commands to stand firm and not to submit again to a yoke of slavery, he teases out those commands with a warning and with an exhortation. If you glance at verses 2 to 6 in Galatians 5, um, you'll see a shift in pronouns. You can notice that. You'll see a shift in pronouns. So so from verses 2 to 4, you see uh, some second-person and third-person pronouns. You see a couple, um, he's and every man and you. But then beginning in verse 5, you see a different pronoun, we. So those shifts mark the shift from a warning to an exhortation or an encouragement. Paul's warning, we see, is, comes in verses 2 to 4. And it's best to see as a warning of what is about to happen in light of that shift in pronouns and in light of, if we read ahead, verse 10. Paul's confidence that they are not going to fall away, but will persevere and turn back to Christ. These verses, then, are a warning of what is about to happen. And Paul's basic warning is don't accept circumcision. He says, look, I, Paul, you can always hear him. He's snapping his fingers. Wake up. This is me. This is Paul. This is the guy you know. This is the guy who preached the gospel to you. This is the guy who really cares about you. This is the guy who loves and cares for you. Don't accept circumcision. Hearing that, 2018, don't accept circumcision. Um, Sure. Okay. I, I, I can handle that. But this is why it's important for us to know the historical situation uh, uh, in which the authors are writing. So for the Galatians, this wasn't just a, an obvious command. They were under a tremendous amount of pressure. One commentator uh, describes their situation in this way. He says, the agitators were probably insisting on circumcision as a necessary step for the Galatian Christians to be considered as belonging to the covenant people and therefore to be found righteous on the day of judgment. And if you look back at a a verse like chapter 4, verse 10, you see that the Galatians were already starting to buy into this way of thinking that they had to earn themselves a place by following the Old Testament law. But now, the next step, the next and decisive step, the most difficult and highest hurdle was circumcision. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't accept that. He gives them three reasons why not to accept circumcision. The first is that if you accept circumcision, and he says Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no advantage to you. How is Christ an advantage to us? He's an advantage to us if he is the one who fulfills the demands of the law in our place. But if we are relying on ourselves to earn a a place with God, if we are relying on ourselves to fulfill the demands of the law, then Christ isn't doing that for us. Christ will be of no advantage to you if you accept circumcision. Because you'll be relying on yourself. 
And he goes on, Paul says, relying on yourself is a bad prospect. It's a bad idea because breaking just one aspect of the law, you break the whole thing. That's what James 2.10 says. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It's like the Jenga tower. Maybe really good at Jenga, but one piece can cause the whole tower to fall. Why is that the case? can't rely on ourselves. One, one breaking of the law causes the whole thing to crumble, causes you to break all of it. We have to peel back the layers of the heart that breaks God's law. And at the core of it, the core motivation of any sin is saying, God, I know this is what you say to do, that this is right, but I don't care. And I'm going to do it my way, and I think your way is wrong. Any breaking of the law is utter rebellion against the king of the universe. And you're going to rely on yourself to fulfill it. Don't accept circumcision. Second reason, he says, don't accept circumcision, because if you do, you will be severed from Christ. You will be severed from Christ. Think about it. If you rely on yourself, how good of a person you are, how many times you come to church, how many times you open up your Bible, how many times you turn on Christian radio instead of uh, other radio, how many times you turn on a Christian movie instead of another movie, you go on and on. If you rely on yourself, then you are your Savior, not Jesus. If you rely on yourself, you are your Savior, not Jesus, and you're severed from Christ. Don't accept circumcision. Third reason is that it will cause you to fall from grace. If you rely on what you do, then you're saying that you don't need what God has done for you. If you want to rely on how good of a person you are, rely on how well you fulfill the demands of the law, then why, why should you need grace? Why would you need God's work for yourself? It comes from a heart that thinks our situation is like a small contained fire in our kitchen. I was cooking bacon this morning, and every now and then a little bit of grease gets into the stove, Flame burns a little bit. I'm a guy, fire's cool, but you know, sometimes fire can get a little bit bigger. So in this situation, perhaps um, fire gets bigger. It stops being cool and starts like, all right, I need to do something about this. Small contained fire. It's all right, I'm I'm all right, but I I am going to get the fire extinguisher. I can put this out. What happens then if the fire keeps spreading? takes over not just your kitchen, but your entire house. Are you going to put that fire out? Are you going to get out the fire extinguisher? You're going to call the fire department because you can't put the fire out yourself. And when they get there, they're not going to say, all right, come on, get, get your suit on, get up your gear, you're going to help us do this. They're going to say, get your behind out of the house and we're going to put out this fire. Friends, 
Our situation is not a small contained fire that we can just put out ourselves. Our house is on fire. And what the Bible says, even more so, our house is on fire and we are unconscious on the floor. God must go through the house, through the flames, pick us up, make us alive, and put out the fire himself. It must be his grace or we die. That's the warning. Don't accept circumcision. When the shift comes in verse 5, instead of accepting circumcision, they need to continue in the way they began. They need to keep going in the way they began. So remember, Christ has set us free. It's done. It's finished. Christ didn't just Give us the tools we need. Equip us with the tools we need to set ourselves free. No, Christ has set us free. It's his completed work. And because it's his completed work, that's how we can, in verse 5, that's how we can eagerly await what lies ahead. The hope of righteousness. People use that word hope and and kind of get confused with our common idea of hope versus biblical hope. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is certain expectation. Certain expectation. Why? The only possible reason why is because it's not on us and the work is already done. It's completed. If it wasn't a certain hope, then we could not wait eagerly for what lies ahead. If it was in part on us and it was not completed, we couldn't wait eagerly. We would have to wait anxiously. We would have no assurance. We would have no eagerness. Listen, friends, we, ask yourself, how can you be certain of where you will be a million years from now. A million years from now. No self-aware person could say they are absolutely certain of where they will be a million years from now as they rely on themselves. The only way we can wait eagerly for a million years is if Christ stands in our place and we rest in his work that is done and completed. That's the exhortation. Keep going in the way you began. And he says in verse 6, continue the way you began because they begun as being declared righteous, justified. They begun as being justified not by doing but by believing. Not by doing, but by believing. So here the agitators were telling the Galatian Christians, are the next step, the next step that you got to do to really be free, to really maintain it, to really earn your status, is to get circumcised. So what they're really saying, if if circumcision is the missing link here, then it's actually circumcision that saves us. And Paul says, no way. He's established that 
clearly already. That if what saves us is ourselves, we are doomed. Because none of us has fulfilled God's demands. Even one breaking of it shows our rebellion against him. So being justified, declared righteous, as we began, does not look like doing. It looks like believing. And believing, that's faith. Faith looks away from ourselves and takes hold of Christ. It takes hold of Christ, who fulfilled the demands of the laws when we didn't, who died the death we deserve in our place, and who rose again to prove it. It's finished. And we take hold of him. And after we first do that, we don't let go. He doesn't stop standing in our place. And, and, and believing that, taking hold of Christ, looking away from ourselves. Friends, that looks more than agreeing that that's true. You know, believing, the way of faith, Paul hints at in verse 6, it, it works through love. So taking hold of Christ looks more like agreeing that it's true. It looks like living like it's true. Keep going the way you began. So verses 1 to 6, there's been a lot of ground. We can summarize it in this way. Christ has set you free. So don't live like he hasn't. Don't live like you have to earn or maintain your freedom by what you do. You can't earn it. And that will put you in bondage. You will be guilt-ridden, anxiety-driven, and always fearful. So friends, once you believe, once you take hold of Christ... Jesus doesn't stop being your Savior. So we've spent a lot of time on this, but I think it's worth pausing for a moment and, re and reflecting on this a bit more. Perhaps there are those here who have never looked away from themselves and taken hold of Christ. Friend, if you are here, that is so good that you are here. What we want to say is what you should know about the people who have taken hold of Christ, that we are freed, that God has done this for us, not because we're so awesome. No, in fact, it's the exact opposite. We deserve not God's grace, we deserve God's wrath. But he's shown grace. So if you've never taken hold of Christ, looked away from yourself, taken hold of him, would you explore the freedom that he offers those who believe in him? Would you explore it? Would you ask yourself, who or what can give you that freedom? Friends, the answer is no one, not even you. Jesus invites us to rest in him. He says, come to me. Those who are heavy laden, no matter your baggage, no matter your former sin, Jesus is mighty to save. He is a strong liberator. 
Would you explore that? If you've never done that, if you want more questions about it, what that would look like in your life, talk to me afterwards. Uh, talk to a Christian friend near you. There are also many people here who have taken hold of Christ, looked away from themselves and taken hold of Jesus. But we need those commands to stand firm, not to submit again to a yoke of slavery, because we don't live like Christ has freed us. We don't live like his work is complete. We fail to live out the freedom he has won for us. How do we do that? I think it's worth considering a couple examples, how we fail to live out our freedom. Friends, I think we fail to live out our freedom that Christ has won when we don't enjoy our freedom, when we don't enjoy it. Verse 5 would indicate that the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. But friends, think about this. Christ has set us free. It's done. It's completed. Like, it's okay to smile because of that. It's, it's finished. Yes, there will be sorrows. Yes, there will be difficult times. But Christ finishing our freedom means we are free to rejoice in that to enjoy what he has won for his people. It's finished. Hallelujah. We fail to live out our freedom because threats come against us. And we prove our, ourselves too weak to handle them. We see the threats of sin that's still in our hearts. That when we sin and forget that Christ has finished it, and that he has won our freedom, then sin keeps us in misery. It keeps us downcast. Now, we should care about our sin, and God cares about our sin. But the forgiveness of it, the payment for it, is done. And I was sharing with uh, some precious ladies on Wednesday night, uh, how much I love the second verse of before the throne of God above. It, it, it relates to this. It says, when Satan tempts me to what? To despair and tells me of the guilt within. What do you do? Where do you look? Upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Jesus has made an end to all of our sin. So yes, we still sin. But because he has finished it, we can with confidence once again draw near to the throne of grace. But even good works, even good works can prevent us from living out our freedom. Knowing that Christ has set us free, that he has done it, and that he has completed it, keeps us from being puffed up from good works. Friends, it, it's already done. That means your good works contributed nothing to your already won freedom. We have to live for the Lord because we want to, not because we have to to earn ourselves a place with him. We fail to live out our freedom. Lastly, we fail to do this when we are not future-oriented enough. When we're not future-oriented enough. Now, we are future-oriented. I don't know about you, but for me, like, 
I'm always thinking about what's next. What's next on the docket? What's, what's tomorrow? What's next week? What's next month? What's next year? What's five years from now? I'm thinking the next milestone. Perhaps on this year, what, what about graduation? What about marriage? What about promotion? What about retirement? What about after that? We're not future-oriented enough. But if Christ has finished it, if it's done, then this life, what's coming up next, I don't know, may be uncertain. But what's in eternity is not uncertain. We can wait for it eagerly. That's how we live out our freedom is when we anticipate the most heaven. When we think of heaven. Friends, do you long for, do you await being with the Lord? Do you await fullness of life and joy that will be there? Do you await never sinning again? <laughs> Do you await the beautiful picture of Zephaniah 3.17 of God, God rejoicing over the ones he has saved, singing over them? Oh, friends, do you await that? So what are you anticipating? If Christ has set us free, that is what we should be anticipating, our future with him. Live out our freedom. Well, it is 11.55. Yep. If you haven't noticed, we spent most of our time on verses 1 to 6. Kind of hinted at that earlier. Uh, but you can think of the, this first point. Keep Jesus as your Savior. Think of that as the main course. Second paragraph is more of a dessert. I like dessert. In other words, once you know what Paul is saying in verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 12 come natural. So in, in, in verses 7 to 12, Paul gets personal again. This is a personal plea. He tells them, stay the course, obey the truth. Don't listen to those trying to pull you away. In verse 7, he uses an athletic analogy. There are sports in the Bible, believe it or not. But this is, a, this is a sport I don't like, running. He sees them running a race on a track, and they're slowing down. Because not something is slowing them down, someone is slowing them down. These agitators, those who unsettle you, verse 12, literally agitators, are slowing them down. They're doing like what my dad likes to do when he sees runners on, the, on Big Creek Parkway. My dad, a former runner himself, now has both knees replaced. Whenever he sees a runner, he wants to yell out to them, no, stop. Because <laughs> it's running that made, his, made him get his knees replaced. And here's Paul saying, don't listen to that. Stay the course. Obey the truth. Not just believe the truth, obey the truth. Not just agree that it's true, live out that it's true. It goes hand in hand. So why should they stay the course and not listen to those trying to slow them down? Well, verse 8, they shouldn't listen because of where this teaching comes from. Where this teaching comes from. He says, remember all the way back to the beginning. How you started. I came announcing to you. The gospel, not of 
what you can do for yourselves, but what God has done for you in Christ. You were called in grace. That's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6. So the agitator's message that they can now all of a sudden contribute to their salvation and save themselves by doing something, that's fundamentally opposed to the gospel of grace. So the standard Paul calls them to is not whether or not a message sounds good. It's whether or not the message is from God. You should take a page from the Thessalonians, who when they heard Paul preaching the gospel, did not judge it as words of men, but as words from God. Their teaching does not come from God. Why should they not listen to the agitators? Not just because where their teaching comes from, but because of what their teaching is doing. Look at verse 9. See, false teaching, false doctrine, is not just a matter of semantics. This is a matter of eternity. The agitator's teaching would lead them to rely on themselves instead of Christ. And if you are relying not on Christ before God, you remain in your sin. And that, friends, is a dangerous prospect. And what's more than being dangerous, it's contagious. Just like leaven in a lump of dough will cause the whole thing to puff up. So a little bit of this teaching will affect a lot of people. Don't listen to it because of what it's doing. Why should they not listen to these agitators who are trying to slow them down and get them to rely on themselves? Well, finally, they shouldn't listen to them because of where their teaching leads. And this is just stunning. This is stunning. Paul says, the agitator's teaching is not from God because it doesn't lead to persecution. That's amazing, isn't it? You think about it, though. Preaching circumcision isn't offensive. Because preaching circumcision is just another way to wrap up a self-help gospel. It's another way to wrap up, you got everything in you that you need to save yourself. You have all the potential that you need right inside of you. You just got to let it go. That's not offensive. That's flattering. The cross is offensive. And the agitators said, were so bold to claim that Paul agreed with them. They said, no way. People still hate me. Because the cross says you can't save yourself. You've sinned against God and you are helpless and hopeless. Christ must save you or you die. That's offensive. So friends, it's not our aim to just offend people for offending people. But we are willing to offend by preaching the truth. And we have to ask ourselves if we are really preaching the message of the cross, if we never get any pushback. So, where it comes from, what it's doing, where it leads, past, present, and future of their teaching. That's why they shouldn't listen. So friends, once we know, verses 1 to 6, that Christ has set us free, we will want, verses 7 to 12, we will want to stay on course how we began. And once we know Jesus, once we've taken hold of Jesus, I mean, I mean really taken hold of him, we will never settle for anything less. 
And Paul concludes, we will never settle for anything less because relying on ourselves is just shockingly hopeless. It is shockingly hopeless. We could never do enough to earn ourselves a place with the Lord. Even the step of circumcision wouldn't be enough. Paul says they're not even doing enough there. They should, they should even go further in verse 12. We could never do enough. But Christ has. Christ has done enough. He's done it, and it's finished. We're set free. But man, do we forget it. Man, do we forget that he's done that. But God is so gracious to remind us again and again that Christ has set us free. He set us free for freedom. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for doing what we couldn't. Thank you for rescuing us when we were dead in trespasses and sin. Thank you for loving us even when we were sinners against you. Thank you for, filling, for fulfilling your demands in our place. Thank you, God, for perfect righteousness in the place of our sinfulness. Thank you, God, for freedom and forgiveness when we deserve your wrath and you took it on yourself. God, this is freedom that you have done this. Lord, help us to remember by your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.